This is the CSIS Careers and Development Series, uh, so make sure you're in the right place. And uh, my name's Bill Garvelink, and with me today is Paula Feeney. And Paula has, uh, has had a long career in AID and then has also been in the private sector for a decade now. And uh, she served in the Caucasus, she served in Geneva, in Kazakhstan, in Nicaragua, Barbados. It's been a number of places all over the world. She was the acting assistant administrator for Europe and Eurasia in AID. And then she joined Cardinal uh, in 2004, I believe. And she is the director of marketing in Cardinal's Emerging Markets uh, U.S. operation here in, in Roslyn, Virginia. And she's going to talk a little bit about her experience as, uh, as in the transition from development to the private sector and the, the intersections there and how they relate to each other. And without further ado, I'll turn it over to you, Paula. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Can you hear me? Bill and I met, and I really am uh, very grateful for the invitation to be here. And thank you to all of you who've uh, ventured out in your boots uh, to uh, uh, talk about and think about international development for an hour. Importantly, I'd like to, uh, and please be my timekeeper. I will. Because uh, I really want to leave as much time as you have, uh, you know, to uh, try to be responsive to your questions or to your comments, which you'd like to add to the exchange this morning. So. Um, I look at myself, I guess Bill does too, when we were working in USAID together, I mean, I really thought of myself, and I still do, as a practitioner in the field of international development. Um, I did have 27 years in the Foreign Service, followed by 10 years in the private sector, so I can, the private for-profit sector, so I can talk about uh, how they relate to each other and uh, how they're different. Some of you are well-established in your career, Tom being one of them, welcome today. Which is the organization you're representing? Global right, and you're in an NGO, uh, right. So we have a, uh, uh, what I wanted to do for you is to talk about some of the pathways. Some of you are already well-established, some of you may be wishing to change, and some of you may be just trying to get established in international development. So I hope to encompass that, that spectrum. Uh, just a little bit about uh, Cargno, where I've worked for 10 years. It used to be Deloitte uh, Emerging Markets, and then we became Emerging Markets Group through a management buyout when Deloitte got out of international development. And then we were acquired by Cargno, which is an international company based in Brisbane. Uh, we have 8,200 employees, and we're working in 100 countries. So we do have a, a global footprint. Um, uh, first of all, I wanted to mention to you that uh, when you think of international development, there are a lot of people, I guess Bill and I being two of them, who do go back and forth or have been back and forth in and out of government, some going in and then out of government or coming into government, uh, and that's one of the things about the field uh, uh, to keep in mind. There are many pathways to work in international development. Uh, whether you are an American or not an American citizen, uh, I think some, pretty much everything that I'm going to say uh, is uh, uh, true uh, around the world in those countries who are engaged in, in international development. Um, we, uh, I wanted to mention before I start talking about the employers whom you may seek to work for, 
or know that they're in the milieu to coordinate or collaborate with. I wanted to say that I thought about this, then there are four lifestyles, if you will, that you can choose in international development. You can choose to move overseas, be based someplace, and do what you're doing there. Or you could be like I was in the Foreign Service, uh, where you move, you, you take long-term assignments, but you move from place to place over time. There are then short-term assignments where you go short-term overseas. A lot of consultants, for example, do that. Uh, because they do want to have a home base here all the time for whatever reasons. Uh, and then there are those who um, actually work in international development, possibly some at CSIS or other think tanks, where they may actually choose to stay, think about, write about, work on international development affairs, but actually stay uh, in Washington to do it. So you can have your, your, your presence could be in four different types of movement or placement. Um, I started, I actually went to my office yesterday, and um, so it could be quiet, uh, and I came up with 10 different pathways, 10 types of organizations that one can work in if you choose the private sector. Um, and I'm just going to list them. I, I might blast away with, a, I don't want you to write any of this down necessarily, but uh, blast away with a few of the organizations whom I'm referring to when I talk about the different types of pathways of work that you may choose. Uh, first, uh, co uh, corporations. We think of uh, these corporations who do, it's, it's typically called corporate social responsibility, but it's morphing into lots of other things. Uh, we work, our company, Cardno, works with uh, a lot of uh, these types of corporations. ExxonMobil, Microsoft, uh, Walmart, Caterpillar, all engaged internationally in their work and in their products. Then there are the professional services firms, or better known as consulting firms. These are for-profit consulting firms in international development. I looked at who the top Congress, you know, they count every fiscal year how much money goes to each contractor so everybody knows in this trans increasingly transparent world. Some of the big names in international development consulting, uh, Comonics, DAI, Tetra Tech, John Snow, APT, AECOM, FHI360. These are some of the bigger uh, firms. I'm not saying they're the best. I'm saying that they're successful in getting money from our government and uh, working for the United States in, in many places. I also want to talk a little bit about, I was mentioning this to Bill earlier, there is a trend in public, excuse me, in private sector consulting firms uh, for consolidation and acquisition. So for example, uh, uh, three Australian firms, the Australian government economy was going gangbusters a very few years ago, and so they bought up. Australian firms bought our group, uh, Cargno bought Emerging Markets Group. Um, Coffee International in Australia bought MSI, uh, Management Systems uh, Incorporated, or International, yeah. And then a third, uh, GRM, an Australian firm, bought uh, the Futures Group. I think uh, Futures Group and, G and uh, MSI may have kept their brands. We, we uh, lost our brand, if you will. We were absorbed totally. Um, also think of small businesses. This is still in the corporate for profit. Um, go to, if you're interested at all in learning more about small businesses, uh, go to sbaic.org. And it is an association of small businesses. And it's a fabulous website. So if you're interested in health, 
and you're interested in Africa, you can push those two buttons and all of the, uh, all of the uh, organizations who work in Africa in health will show up. So that's another group that sometimes you always think about the big guys, but uh, with our government's emphasis increasingly on uh, giving a part of the pie to small businesses, uh, that's another way, especially uh, for those who might be starting out because you might have multiple caps early in your career, which would allow you at a smaller business to do different things, see what you like, bring your talents to a group that will need you to do various things. Uh, then, of course, there are the not-for-profits. Uh, some of them are household names. Let me, uh, Mercy Corps, Save the Children, International Medical Corps. There you go. I know where the invitation came from. <laughs> uh, for those of you who may not know, uh, Bill Garvelink is also a senior advisor, senior uh, person working with uh, Mercy Corps and doing great things uh, in the Ebola. I'm sorry, what did I say, Mercy Corps? Yes. You know, I won't say anything more. <laughs> I do write checks to both. Well, I haven't written checks yet to International Medical Corps. I do write checks to Mercy Corps because some of the things that they've done. It's so nice to be out of government because I can write checks to whomever I want to and not feel at all, uh, uh, what should we say, obliged to. Right. Accepting any gifts from that sort of thing. Doctors Without Borders, AfriCare. It goes on and on. Uh, if you wanted to know who uh, a good list of those, I would suggest going to Interaction's website and look at their members, and you could see just the vast array. Whatever subject matters you might be interested, there are a, a whole host of uh, NGOs working in those areas. You might not think of this, but media. And there is a media source in the international development space. That is DevEx. Uh, dot com, which brings together uh, interesting stories, trends, funding trends, uh, topic trends, um, and uh, also uh, uh, they follow the budget fairly closely of the U.S. government. There are the faith-based organizations. They are, they've always been players, but now I think it may have started in the Bush, George W. Bush administration that they were a recognized cast of characters who needed more uh, uh, understanding coming from the U.S. government, so USAID and the, the National Security Council or the White House has a faith-based, it's the White House has a faith-based uh, nodule, nodule. Uh, those would be groups like World Vision, Bread for the World, Catholic Relief Services, uh, spanning the array of, um, uh, you know, the types of religions in the world, and, and these are, uh, some of them are really big players now. Um, then let's go on to a group called Advocacy Groups. Uh, and they are uh, advocating for, in mostly in the case of international development, uh, more resources for international development or hold the resources, uh, often advocating to obviously the general public and also the U.S. Congress, which makes the financial decisions. Uh, this would be groups like uh, the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, the One Campaign, uh, Interaction I mentioned before, which represents the NGOs, the private consulting firms are uh, represented by the Professional Services Council, PSC, and another group uh, that I refer you to their website because there was a recent blog from George Ingram that might be worth a read. Uh, this is the uh, MFAM. This is Modern MFAN, Modernizing Foreign Assistance. Um, George writes about, uh, he used to be on the Hill, used to be with AID, and now is with Brookings and um, MFAN and uh, the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. George writes about his take on what we can expect from the 114th Congress, Republican-led, uh, but some insights as to who's, who's, who's doing what and what might happen with respect to the, he paints a relatively posit positive picture. 
Then there are think tanks. We are, I should have started with think tanks because that's physically where we are today. And uh, I have seen uh, CSIS really blossom in the last few years. I think in part because of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's monies to your health program. There's a very strong health policy group here. Uh, and other uh, resources coming into CSIS and international development. Um, um, Jan Rundy's group, I forget exactly what the name of that group is here, but uh, keeping a spotlight on international development. Other think tanks, if this is where you might want to go, if you're subject specific interested uh, or regional specific, uh, you can look into the Wilson Center, uh, the Hudson Institute, that tracks philanthropic work in international development. New America Foundation, Brookings, and there are a lot of other think tanks, but they are taking, people take, make time in their career to think and write and talk uh, about the subject. Two more on this long list, three more on this long list of 10, and I'm not going to ask you what I've left off, I'll just keep going to do three more. One would be the foundations. Uh, in today's Washington Post, quite a nice story about the CDC Foundation particular with respect to their taking on Zuckerberg's money and Gates' money and Mr. Allen's money uh, to try to help in West Africa. Very interesting article. Uh, Open Society, George Soros's group, uh, the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller, others that are somewhat household names that are, are uh, again, uh, thinking and writing and talking about uh, the agenda. Uh, we ha we're beginning to see a larger collection now of business associations focused on international development and promotion of U.S. business internationally. Some that come to mind, the Corporate Council on Africa, uh, the Business Council for International Understanding, uh, the, uh, then some of it's uh, interestingly country-specific, like the U.S.-Libya Business Association, World Business Council for Sustainable Development. These are just a few uh, that bring businesses together. Uh, my company is a member of the Corporate Council on Africa, and for those of you who are interested in Africa, that organization represents U.S. companies that uh, are calculated to be making 85% of the U.S. foreign direct investment in Africa, are members of the uh, uh, Corporate Council on Africa, CCA. Um, I also uh, want to talk about the uh, diaspora, diaspora groups increasingly uh, talking to the government, learning from the government. Uh, one that impressed me when I saw them at a conference not too long ago uh, were the Tunisian American Young Professionals. They have a website, they have newsletters, they're organized, they'll let you know what they're thinking about what's going on in Tunisia from a perspective a little bit different than Uncle Sam's, for example, but that involves a lot of very, uh, uh, what should we say, motivated, talented, uh, Tunisians, some of them working in the international development sphere. So um, there was one uh, NGO that I wanted to mention to all of you, uh, which is probably one that might be val valuable to most of you. Uh, you can join as an individual, and it's called the Society for International Development. And uh, it's uh, uh, the Washington branch of that is very active. Uh, just to let you know that they have four geographical working groups and they have 19, or 17 or 19, I can't remember exactly, uh, working groups. So if you're interested in governance or you're interested in food security or health or economic growth or uh, just about anything that you can imagine, 
Uh, they have working groups in that. So you can connect yourself, join the, the organization, and then you'll have access to being able to go to those sessions where you will be together with like-minded, interested people. And each one of those, one of my big messages that I'd like to relay, uh, is the importance of networking. Um, you are going to learn a lot by reading, but you will complement that by actually interacting in sessions like today, uh, getting out, uh, talking to people with similar interests, letting them know uh, what you're if you're interested in changing uh, your career pathway. Um, one of the things that people talk about is the elevator pitch, but I've heard it made a little bit more simple, uh, and that is just get three sentences that you're very comfortable saying who you are and what you'd like to be doing, and let that networking process maybe lead you to uh, water that you didn't know was there in the desert if you th think it's hard. I mean, it's amazing how networking becomes, certainly at my age it's very valuable, but it's even perhaps more valuable uh, as you begin to make your connections. And that's how you're going to find out about um, opportunities that may be not on uh, some website being advertised, but beat the, beat the crowd by using your, your networks. Now let's go uh, then quickly to the publicly financed uh, job opportunities or career paths. Um, now, uh, I'm going to name uh, four. One is the multilateral organizations. Those of you who live in Washington, of course, you know about the World Bank and, and the IFC, of course, the World Bank Group, uh, United Nations, um, the regional development banks, one in Washington, the Inter-American Development Bank, but as you know, there are these development banks in all the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank. Americans do work in these organizations. Um, let me just give you an example. One of my former AID colleagues, a woman named Trish Mosier, whom you may have met, Trish heads the, she was in the Foreign Service, and now heads the health group at the Asian Development Bank. This is maybe two years ago when she moved there and she was going to be supervising 17 people in that health group at the Asian Development Bank. So there are, again, uh, opportunities for Americans in those organizations. Um, one uh, another, and this is an organization that we work very closely with at my company, and that's the Global Fund to Fight HIV, AIDS, Malaria, Tuberculosis. Um, again, multilateral organizations which funding often comes from governments. Uh, a lot of it being voluntary, some of it involuntary. Uh, universities. We often think of those as private sector groups. They can be private, but a lot of them are public uh, universities that, let's take the one that's next door, the University of California. Uh, obviously, private funds coming in, but a lot of it coming from the public coffers of the state of California. Uh, Land-grant universities, um, and many of them have offices in Washington, such as the Arizona State University. Uh, one of their Washington senior reps is a former AID person, Janet Ballantyne. Um, Peter McPherson is the head of APLU, the Association of Land-Grant Universities. Right, and for those of you who may not know who Peter McPherson is, uh, certainly one of my, uh, what do you want to call it, heroes. Uh, in international development. He uh, was the head of the U.S. Agency for International Development, but he might have been the first head of aid who had actually been a Peace Corps volunteer. So he got it and was very effective in, in uh, growing the agency at that time. Then he went on, I think he left aid to become the president of Michigan State University, is that correct? Treasury. Treasury. As, 
undersecretary, then Michigan State, and I then again the hat of being the head of uh, representing the land grant universities in the United States. That, and a lot of them are working in the food security sphere now, for example. And then let's go to uh, uh, more public sector, uh, the U.S. government. Uh, I've, I've been very surprised in my career uh, to see how many Americans think that maybe USAID or the State Department may be the only way to go in the Foreign Service. Um, but I like to remind people that the Department of Commerce has a foreign service, the Department of Agriculture has a foreign service, obviously the intelligence communities do. Um, uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation works internationally in international development. Um, and also we do see the Department of Defense now increasingly interested in civilian and military affairs. Uh, Bill was saying that uh, now at West Point, I guess, they have a center for civilian military affairs as well. Uh, if you're not in the military, you might be on the civilian part of that equation. Um, and then the last of the public sector groups, publicly funded, would be, of course, the U.S. Congress. And uh, from the international development perspective, uh, there are uh, primarily uh, four committees, uh, Senate uh, Foreign Relations, the House Foreign Affairs, um, and then, of course, the subcommittees that are responsible for appropriations uh, to, to the international affairs, the international development budget. So there are a lot of uh, staff positions there. I, I don't know if there are a lot, but those are another place that you can work in international development but from that perspective. Um, then very quickly, um, I wanted to say what I think you should think about yourself if you're bringing yourself to the table to seek a job with any of these organizations. Um, as you, as you package yourself, I hate to use that term, maybe it's because I'm working with an international consulting firm, or the word that's used is spin, spin yourself. And these are the things that uh, you, you need to include and, and amplify as much as you can in your CVs. Uh, clearly your education, uh, obviously a base and an interest in international development, excuse me, international affairs. Uh, master's helps. It's not absolutely required, but it's something that I think you're going to have many more job opportunities if you have at least a master's. Uh, you're going to bring technical skills as well. Um, remember earlier I talked about the 18 or so working groups at SID? Those would be, if you looked at SID's website for working groups, you'd get probably all of the subject matters covered you know, in a box. You, you know, you could figure out which boxes you have skills or education. I, I hate to bring it down that way, but it's important for you to use the terminology that's the common terminology because your CVs may initially be looked at by a machine and not by the human eye. So sort of use the, the terminology, get the words right. Certainly your uh, geographical experience helps uh, a lot. Uh, if you've actually been to Africa and you would know a mosquito if you saw one, that will help your chances if you wanted to get involved in international development. Languages, foreign languages. Um, and then, this is important, management. Now, what can you manage? You can manage three things. So, hopefully somewhere in your career you've managed one, two, or three of these things. You can manage people, you can manage programs, you can manage money. And that's what so many of the, the government and 
private sector organizations are, are looking for. You pair that with some technical skills, some geographical experience, geographical experience and language, and bingo. You know, you're going to be having a set of skills that might be useful to even all of those organizations, types of organizations which I mentioned. Then this is another thing that is very important. You, if you look at a lot of these jobs, they're going to be asking you to do four things, one of four things, or all four of the four things. One is to assess and analyze problems. That's a skill set. The second is designing a response to the program. So that could be if you were working on proposals or if you're on the other side, if you're on the side of the table where you're uh, controlling the money, that you'd still have to be able to design a methodology to move that money effectively. Then there's implementation. You know, have you implemented something? And uh, that doesn't have to be an international development, but you've implemented something else, so show that you have implementation experience. And lastly, but very importantly, if you have monitoring and evaluation skills. Those are hot skills in the marketplace today. Not enough Americans know that. Um, also, as you get a little older, um, it's often said uh, that it's not what you know, but who you know. And that is, again, back to this networking and getting to know people and staying in touch with them. And it's not just Facebook or LinkedIn. It's actually you know, doing some FaceTime with people so that they know you and can come to say that person knows what they're talking about or has something to offer. Um, I, I have not gotten into the technical stuff about, you know, PPPs, which are really big these days. Uh, we're working in a number of public-private partnerships. That's a way that um, you can bring, uh, in, in my world, where you bring together government money or some, and then some private money from corporations, sometimes then groups like our own who can provide some technical assistance. Um, I, I like to give uh, uh, one example. Uh, we were working for BG in Tunisia, and uh, they, well, they asked us to analyze a problem for them associated with their gas fields in southern Tunisia. So we analyzed the problem, and they said, can you design a response? We did, and then, well, can you carry it out now that you've designed it? And we were able to do all of those things, and then when the Arab Spring came, uh, it was interesting, lots of expats faded and we were asked to stay and continue to do our work throughout the Arab Spring because the we were working with the community uh, impacted by the, uh, the, gas, uh, the gas fields and the work. So um, that, that's in the field of social and environmental economic impact assessments. That is a growing, we have a whole unit in our office in Washington who works in that uh, field of uh, social, environmental, and economic impact assessments that then could lead to work with private clients. I don't know if that's too, uh, I don't want to be a windbag, but I wanted to uh, reflect for you that there's a lot of a playing field. It's not a narrow path, but many pathways uh, that if any of you are hashers, are any of you hashers, the hash house harriers? Well, then I won't go on with the story, but if you are, <laughs> very quickly, it's a running club, yes. and you, they, they sort of. Sort of and they set paths to run, and uh, there's only one correct one. So if you go and you come to a dead end, you have to turn all the way back and take another pathway. 
So if you were a hasher, you would know that in international development, you might have some hash-like experiences. Bill, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. <laughs> so um, anyway, I'll stop there. I, I hope that I hit on some of the th I saw some of you taking notes, which means that I at least uh, transferred a little bit of information to you. So thank you, and I'll be glad to entertain your question, Bill, and others. Well, I, I, uh, if you all think about some questions you want to ask, I just want to make one comment and, and emphasize something that you mentioned, and that uh, when you're applying for jobs, and this is particularly, I've seen it from the AID side, uh, you've got to get the terminology right. Because <laughs> there was a guy who was, had, I forget his name, he was an assistant administrator of aid, assistant secretary. He was applying for a job in AID after he retired. And he had a great resume, but he didn't pay any attention to the right terms. And he didn't realize the first cut at resumes are done by a computer. And they're looking for certain words in there. And the guy couldn't get hired. Everybody wanted to hire him, but they couldn't, he couldn't get a resume through the system. Even though he had 30-some-odd years' experience on that particular topic, he didn't take the time to read the, or the, the job description and use the key terms that are in there. Uh, you can have a great resume and have a great history, and if you don't use those terms, the computer kicks you out. And uh, unfortunately, that's how they do uh, job searches now initially. They didn't do that when I was around. Actually, somebody read them all, and your connections got you through faster that way. But I think it's important to keep in mind that you got to write your letter, and that, a cover letter that goes very, conforms very closely to the job description. Well, I would um, I'd say that a little differently, if I may. Sure. Um, the cover letter is not part of the package, right, as it enough. turns yeah. on. You bet, you, you'd best adapt your CV for yeah. the job. And cover letters are sort of going out of style. People yeah, don't have, they get detached. They never get put into the database. So if you're going to spend the time on that cover letter, then build the, the essence of that into what you might call key qualifications right. at the top of the resume. Uh, that that yeah, is right. really, uh, really true these days. Uh, so the same information, but just put it in key qualifications for, the, for that particular job. Yep. Anyway, questions? Athena. Um, for someone who's more interested in a position like you're in now, so say the marketing or communication side of either in government or in the private sector, do you think a person is better off just getting more development experience or more of those specific marketing and communication skills, and does it matter where you get that experience? Um, I think that's an excellent question, and uh, there is a young woman who works uh, for me, and uh, she had a, you know, a communications background, academic preparation there, and yet international skills, you know, international affairs studies as well. So she brings the real skills that are new skills in the marketplace. They're not new to you all, but they are to a lot of people. You know, the social marketing skills, uh, being able to uh, use our, uh, you know, website, and uh, we're fighting that because we don't like the Brisbane website, but we're trying to get it fixed up. But those skills, a lot of you all have those skills just through the course of whatever job you're doing to be able to use the tools of communication. Uh, so it would be good to have some, at least some marketing. But, but if, 
is some, maybe some courses or whatever. But you again, you have to understand the, the subject matter if you're going to then mark, what am I marketing? I'm marketing our company's uh, skills uh, to our clients and arranging for FaceTime or what the term is called eminence building, that we're getting familiar, we're trying to get our name to be familiar as a trusted partner. So you have to know subject matter in international development. You have to know your company or your organization if you're marketing that. And then you have to know all of the tools of the trade, which are uh, complex and which, which are going to be the most useful for you, the LinkedIn, all of these tools and using them and being able to, uh, information management as well, knowledge management, being able to have, you know, know about how to use contact databases, again, to be able to call upon people uh, separate and apart from the CV database. I'll, I'll give you an example. DevEx has 500, 000, more than 500,000 resumes. So you, if you were going to go on DevEx and look for a job or whatever, 500,000 other people are also looking at DevEx to see that job opportunity. Uh, we have a, over 50,000 resumes in our database. But, um, you know, managing the databases, all of that is part of knowledge management. I don't know, it's a long-winded answer, but um, it's important to have a variety of skills, I think, to be a good marketeer. Um, could you elaborate on what you just said? If you have 50,000 resumes in your database, what percentage would you say of people that you hire are people that you only came into contact with through that database? Okay, again, from the perspective, good question, from the perspective of an, inter of an international development consulting company, we do two types of hiring. Corporate hiring, which would be for uh, jobs in the Washington office, and the other is for consultants to work on proposals or consultants to work in the implementation should we win the opportunity to execute a program for a client such as USAID. It is a combination, and I don't know the percentages. Um, I used to head in our company for about 18 months, I used to head um, all of our recruiters. And they're working in, they're asking all of us if we know anybody who would be good for a particular job, uh, and then we we do a lot of uh, hiring through our through our uh, database. LinkedIn is another way that we are hiring increasingly. You know, you could have somebody in our LinkedIn network uh, who is not uh, in our database, so we use that as well. Um, it's a combination. And we often have to use the databases if it's an assignment in a, in a difficult, uh, and increasingly so, uh, difficult settings to work. Uh, for example, right now we are working in Sierra Leone, uh, Guinea, and uh, Liberia, but not in Ebola. So we've had some trouble uh, staffing some of those positions right now. So again, uh, it's a combination but that database is very, very important. Oh, and the other thing is, uh, and you'll find that you'll be asked as well, the more you get into a field, somebody will call you. Bill was just mentioning this. There was a recent CEO chosen to head one of Washington's NGOs, and Bill was approached, who do you know, Bill? And I get a lot of calls like that as well. So there's that word of mouth, uh, and, uh, or people will call you to ask you if you will be a reference for them. One tip there is, 
sure, John, I'll be your reference, but reminded, remind me, where did we work together and what did you do? Because you can't remember exactly, was that, was that 98 or was that 2004, you know? And you, you just want to be able then to be able to respond to say, yes, we worked together in 2000, you know what I mean? 2008, yes, we did work together over six months in Kazakhstan doing X. So. Hi, Regina Kampa from a company named Seidel that provides solutions and technology for elections. Um, I'm interested about your current responsibilities and what a big contractor looks for a subcontractor. What are the, not just on the personal basis, but on the company experiences? What is an ideal subcontractor? An ideal subcontractor is a subcontractor who feels that they are getting their fair share of the pie. This has become, I'm going to make this statement and then come back. There has become a rather serious problem in Washington from the perspective of the subcontractors, and this is often small businesses, not always, that the small business or the subcontractor helps the prime win the contract, and then thank you very much, but the prime does not give the sub any work. And this is something that's not being tracked by USAID, and this has the companies, uh, I don't know, enraged. I mean, it is really a problem uh, that the primes like to hog all of the, the work. And one other changing dynamic is that uh, due to USAID's new strategy, new policy for localization, um, that means more of the international uh, assignments uh, are not filled by expats now. They're being filled by qualified uh, local nationals, nationals from the, the country. Um, the subs generally uh, play a role because AID doesn't have as much staff. They don't have enough contracting officers, so they'll put together multi-sectoral projects. And the prime may not have uh, deep skills in a health project, for example, in laboratory skills. So they'll go to an, a group to provide that niche, you know what I mean, that, that niche work in laboratory work to give them a full response to what the client's buying. Um, I think relation, you know, the thing to remember is today, not if you're a big company like Comonix, Comonix never subs, but a lot of mid-sized companies, they will sub one day and prime the next day. You're only worth your reputation. There are organizations that nobody will sub to because it's a standard operating procedure. They win and they take the spoils. So, uh, but why are subcontractors used? A, if a small business, the prime gets credit for bringing a small business to the table and then that meets the quotas that, <coughs> quotas in quotations for uh, utilization of small business but mostly it's for niche work, a piece of work, a component of a three-component project. You give the sub-component one, and you let them run with it. Hi. Um, I'm, my name is Amanda Caldera. I'm here with CSIS. Um, you mentioned some technical skills that you think are really important to work on the field, um, such as being able to design a response to a a problem to implement the response and, and also monitoring and evaluation. Um, but so, some of these skills, we don't always get a chance to 
to acquire them through our, through our jobs, especially monitoring and evaluation because it's so often done by a third party. So I was wondering if you have any recommendations on how to acquire these skills or maybe if there are any training courses on, on that that you would recommend? Yes. Um, I would say that in the marketplace in Washington, one of the most uh, respected places to get training is through what's called InsideNGO.org. We, my company is a member, and uh, the last time I counted, there were 305 member organizations that belong to InsideNGO, and they are basically a training center. I'm not saying they have a fixed place, but you know they're running training a lot. I would say that would be one place to go. Um, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, there are associations of uh, evaluators and that sort of thing. You could find out more about that. But um, that's where we send a lot of our staff to get um, up to date on some of the new thinking. Now, just as an aside, because we were talking about small businesses, et cetera, uh, USAID chose, I think it was five small businesses to be there, the, to take on their internet, indefinite quantity contract IQC for uh, monitoring and evaluation. So if you wanted to find out firms who specialize in those subjects, uh, you could check that out on AID by just checking USAID IQC monitoring and evaluation. I can think of one called Social Impact. They were so successful that they lost their status as small business. They became a big business because they were doing work in monitoring and evaluation. So it's an up, if you look at groups like um, Millennium Challenge Corporation, they're very serious. And I can't remember, is it 3% or 10%? Some big percentage of their monies are set aside, if you will, for utilization in monitoring and evaluation because they are, authorized every one or two years by Congress to stay in business. And if they can't tell their story with facts and figures about successes, they're going to go down the tube. So that's probably one of the most serious US government organizations that I know of in monitoring and evaluation space in terms of really doing it and not just doing the blah, 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 and not really doing it. Hi, my name is Charles Rice. I'm here at CSIS also. Good morning. Um, my question, you talked a little bit about um, corporate social responsibility budgets, and um, certainly that's part of the development picture. Um, I think increasingly it seems like a lot of development's been getting done not through those small cutouts, but through sort of core business practices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we talk a lot about this with a company like Chevron. You know, they have a pretty significant CSR budget, but, you know, their local sourcing and so on is so much larger. So do you see an increase in the crossover and skills that private corporations are looking at as well as, you know, development professionals. You're a perfect example of someone who's sort of sat on both sides of that line. Do you think there is a, I guess, yeah, I mean, my question is whether there's sort of those skills are becoming more and more similar. I would say yes. In other words, uh, that the uh, Exxon Mobiles and the Chevrons are, are building up their own internal capacity. But one of the, let me give you an example of a country where we're doing a lot of this type of work, social, environmental, and uh, economic impact assessment, would be a place like Papua New Guinea. You may not get the Chevron guys and girls to go and sit in Papua New Guinea to actually execute. So they're on the, in the difficult places in the world. 
The execution is often done by, if you will, consulting groups that assist. But I think that it's not something that's all turned over to uh, you know, the consulting firms. They can really design what they want at a Chevron and m monitor or, you know what I mean, really keep uh, tight reins on what's going on. But often, you know, if you're going to go to Mongolia to work on mining or whatever, they may not send their own people out. When they, they may design, they may assess, they may design, but the implementation would uh, sometimes, you know, go to the uh, private sector consultants. I don't know if that answers your question. If I could just add an example of that, I was uh, spent a few years in the Congo, and Freeport MacMoran uh, is, is the big investor there, a billion dollars a year or so. And they had agreements with PACT and one other NGO to take care of their development issues around their, their, their mining concessions. So they had, as Paula said, they had people watching uh, from Freeport MacMoran, watching closely, but the people on the ground interacting uh, with the community were a couple of NGOs. Right. And I'll give you an example that's uh, current time. Shell, Niger Delta. Uh, Shell is conducting, they did a uh, uh, EOI, expressions of interest. You come in with your skill set and what you've done in Nigeria or whatever. And they chose seven companies. We are one of those who are now sitting in Lagos uh, interviewing for Shell's work on development work in the Niger Delta. So uh, what I wanted to say further to your commentary is that there's sav this Shells of the world are savvy enough to be able to write their scopes of work and then to take the time to interview seven qualified firms to have the work done. It's very important to them that that work be done well, that the communities impacted are feeling good, feeling, uh, what should we say, part of the win-win uh, situation. Anyone have one last question? Could I ask one last question? If I were to give this uh, type of quick seminar, um, what was missing or what would you dial back on? Um, this would be very, very helpful to me because, or did I forget something that I should have said or what would you have liked to hear more of? Well, I'll say I... There, there was one... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I think that your presentation was very clear and well-structured. I like how you were giving lists of different things uh, and different pathways and different skills. Uh, I think that it would have been useful also to, if you took a bit of time to compare between these different... Uh, paths or skills or lifestyles that we could choose from? Just say one quick thing on lifestyles. A career in international development is a serious undertaking, especially if you are looking for work-life balance. I guess I'll say, <laughs> just say it like that. It's, it's hard if you have long stretches overseas and you have a family or a significant other not there, um, uh, so you see a lot of people who are young in international development and a lot of them fade away. Uh, but then there will always be young people behind them. Uh, but there are, you know, there are ways to make it work so that, uh, and I would say that one last point is that I've been really uh, happy to see a much bigger effort on the part of the foreign service agencies to help in job seeking or job, uh, they have career fairs now for the State Department spouses. That's new as of this last year. Mm -hmm. That's huge. 
because um, many of the spouses are professional in their own right and definitely don't want to have a career put on a permanent hold. Um, so that's an important consideration of one's personal life in that, factoring that into what we're all talking about today. And I think emphasizing that as, as, as opposed to, say, 25 years ago, uh, there are a lot more dangerous places now. And so there are unaccompanied posts. You see a lot more of those in international affairs than, than in the past. And so that's, and that's a, a fact, that's going to be a fact of life in this business from now on, I think. I was going to ask you one question that for a little more explanation too, if you, if you want mm -hmm. to. You've had a lot of contact with the United Nations. You didn't, yes. didn't really talk about the UN specifically, you just mentioned multilateral organizations, but the UN's a little bit of a different animal. It certainly is. And, Bill, you'll probably know the number of UN agencies that exist. Uh, the one, perhaps, that, that uh, I know well because I was the U.S. aid representative in Geneva would be the World Health Organization. And maybe it's illustrative. By the way, Geneva is filled with UN offices. UNICEF has a huge building there, and of course the UNHCR and ILO and WTO and whoever else is in Geneva, very fascinating place. Uh, I think that my observation is that it's hard for Americans to get jobs in the UN. The State Department recognizes that. They have an office in, uh, uh, that specializes in placing Americans in the UN so that we get our fair share. Generally, it goes to what percentage of monies the United States pays to a particular UN agency that we get some comparable number of, of employees. Um, the one thing about the UN, I don't mean to be critical, but the management is more international. Americans have a different management perspective. It's frustrating for Americans in a lot of the UN agencies because, you know, Americans want to talk and then get a decision and move and it's hard sometimes in, in the UN agencies. They have further developed uh, project management, what is it, UN Ops now, yep. that's, that's come along in these last years that end up doing a lot of their procurement and helping them to be more agile in uh, procuring and fiscal management and that sort of thing. Um, again, uh, if you have skills, you're gonna be more competitive. Same with the World Bank, that Americans uh, have trouble getting in. I don't know if that's, but they play a very, leadership role, let's take UNDP, often on the ground, they will help in the, play a very effective role in coordinating uh, the international donations coming in and programs in international development. So they, it often boils down to the executive on the ground, as, as yep. we know. They have some really good people, and then they have some who are a little less uh, effective on the ground. It's a mixed bag. Yep. Please thank me and, uh, for Paula being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much.